You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast, where we talk about paleontology and earth history and stuff like that. This episode's topic is cacti. Cacti! Uh, that's right. It's a plants episode. This episode 185 ends in the number five, which means we're talking about plants with our good friend and recurring co-host, Dr. Ali Baumgartner. Ali will be joining us when the main discussion comes along to blow our minds about super cool plants yeah <laughs> this episode we will talk about cactuses cacti what makes them interesting where they live how they live how they're formed and what we understand about the evolutionary history and past of cactus evolution yeah that this is one of those where already cactus are super neat yes but i don't i i was not informed about them so getting to go into an episode with a plant I already think is cool with Allie is always exciting. Yeah, there are some surprises in this discussion <laughs> that I was not prepared for. Nope. So, uh, listeners, do enjoy that. As is tradition these days, all the episodes that end in five are plant episodes. But not just any plants. Plant topics that are requested by our audience. There were a bunch of people who wanted us to talk about cacti. <laughs> this episode was requested by Jonathan... Kyla, April, Danielle, Lydia, D. Saka, Jackie, MJ, Holly, Keegan, Lassie, Susanna, Bosco, Z, Gabe, Hannah, Emmett, and Dream Centipede. Wow, great requests, everyone. <laughs> I think that makes this our most requested plants episode. That would make sense, yeah. Uh, although I didn't actually go in and count. <laughs> I think that's like 18 requesters. It's a bunch. <laughs> this is This one's way up there. Thank you, everybody, for requesting this episode. We hope that you enjoy. Hey, not only does our audience get to submit requests for episode topics, there's a ton of different ways that our audience can support us. First and foremost being our Patreon. Everything that we do on the podcast is supported by the support that we get from our patrons on Patreon. Patrons get access to all sorts of extra bonus stuff, bonus content, director's note, monthly live streams with us your humble hosts. <laughs> Just last month, we had a patron giveaway as part of our seven-year anniversary celebration to celebrate reaching a milestone of 500 patrons. So the Patreon's going strong, and it's a great time to join and support us if you are so inclined. One of the benefits that patrons can get at a certain level is their name shouted out in gratitude here on the podcast. This episode, we would like to shout out and welcome Celine, Brian, and Helicoprian. Thank you so much for the support and welcome to the Patreon. Thank you, everybody. Hey, if you're looking for ways to support our science communication efforts and give back to us in whatever way you can think of, there's a bunch of ways to do it. You can join our Discord or follow us on social medias. But we also have a physical mailing address. We sure do. We recently got some mail. We got a bunch of mail. We got a lot of packages and letters from people and they are great. We got a package from Elizabeth which a bun with a bunch of little building block Lego-esque animals that are very cute. Uh, I built them, so you'll get to see pictures <laughs> when we post those. And a new Star Wars uh, uh, vacation postcard. This one I particularly like is from Scarif, which means it is a vacation postcard to a 
Imperial Outpost. Yep. Which is very funny to me. <laughs> Wish you were here. <laughs> we got a sticker from Mahalish, which is a Triceratops sticker that says three horns, no regrets. <laughs> very cute. It is added to my laptop. We got a card from Julie with a very nice message in it and a donation. So thank you for that. Thank you, Julie. And then we got a package from Kathy, Kyle, and I think it said Lu- Lucia, which was two figures of an Elasmosaurus and a Chronosaurus that used to be their daughter's. Uh, and now we have it, which actually turned out to be the same figures that I used to have. Yeah, I also had that Elasmosaurus. <laughs> yeah. so these are classics. Actually, I think I have that Elasmosaurus here. Oh, right. And I forgot until just this minute <laughs> after this recording, I'll go see if that is where I think it is. Yeah, so it's just, it was a very nostalgic package. Very cool. Thank you to everybody who has sent us lovely physical gifts. Yeah, they were really sweet. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll post pictures and you'll get to see them all. So it was exciting getting all this mail. (laughs) If you would like to join the Bask and Coil community in any sort of way, you can find links to our email, social medias, Discord, website, physical mailing address, all that down in the episode description. Hey, we've got some other stuff coming up that we'll just mention briefly here. Not long after this episode comes out, we will be starting our new series, Spotlight 2024. Yep. Which will be running throughout the year, where we will be sitting down to chat with fellow SciComers about science communication. We'll talk about paleontology, podcasting, and such. Stay tuned for more details about that as they become available. Also, in March, we're going to be at ETS UConn again in Johnson City, Tennessee, where we'll be doing presentations about nerd stuff. I'm very excited. It's always a ton of fun there. Going to be very cool. So if you are in the area, come say hi. I think that's all the announcements for this episode. Sounds good to me. So let's move on to the news. Every episode, before we get into the main discussion, we like to pick some news from recent paleontological evolutionary science studies to review, muse over, give our thoughts, keeps everybody up to date on what's going on. Will, news please. My first news is actually some archaeology about stone jewelry that seem to indicate different cultural populations. Ooh. Yeah. This is research by Jack Baker et al. in Nature, and the article is by Jennifer Nalwicki in Live Science. Find these news article links in the blog post after this episode. So this study was looking at populations and artifacts from Europe, prehistoric humans looking at around 34 to 24,000 years ago. And these populations of ancient peoples were known to decorate themselves with beads and other baubles and and adornments. Yeah, Mm -hmm. adornments. This study was looking at this period, which is known as the Gravettian, and was wanting to look at these craftings to see what they can tell about the different types they see, because there are different known jewelry in different areas, and so they're trying to find, is there a pattern, is there any distinction between different areas and different times that might distinguish different peoples that were making these various crafts. They were also wanting to compare this with genetic data for different populations. So we have genetic information from ancient human material around this area, in some of these areas at least, And wanting to compare, can we distinguish genetic populations with cultural populations and make any connections? There's a ton of variety in the materials used to make this type of jewelry. Uh, Many of them are often beads, likely either for personal adornment or maybe cultural markings. 
you know, so it could be multiple uses, but they include things made out of ivory, bone, teeth of various animals, antlers, gemstones, shells, amber, like tons of material. So they were really crafty. And the researchers analyzed 134 different types of adornments collected by archaeologists from different areas over the past century. So this is a huge collection that they looked over, including 112 different sites throughout Europe. Wow. So big look at a bunch of different kinds of jewelry from lots of different areas, and they put the data into a database that they collated with previous scientific studies and other literature on them, and we're now able to start looking for trends and groupings among all of this jewelry and they classified nine distinct cultural groups based off of the different features of the jewelry either their location or the styles of -hmm. jewelry there were some big trends that were interesting one was noted between the east and the west both foxes and red deer are abundant across the continent in both of those areas during the whole period Mm-hmm. but they only see people wearing fox canines in the east and people wearing deer canines in the west. Interesting. So, so they're using the local animals for jewelry in different ways. Yes, so they both had access to these animals, but the style or cultural habits seem to be distinct. And because they both had access, it seems that they were choosing to use only one of those animals in the east and one of those in the west. Yeah. There's also noted movement of materials between different groups and across different areas. So they can kind of track the potential trading of materials or at least gathering from different areas and then bringing back to different locations. One of the evidences of the movement was a burial site in Italy with the remains of a young uh, boy in it that was adorned with materials that originated hundreds of miles away. Right, right. So they're either... Most likely trading them Mm -hmm. with people from far off. This was known especially with teeth and fossil shells. Those were the ones they noted moved around very commonly. Interesting. They noted that some of these differences could just be explained by geographical separation. You know, that you have better access to different things in different areas. But cultural driven boundaries seems to be a much larger factor than just location. So these seem to be actively chosen or practiced habits Right, there's different fashion or different traditions in different areas. One of the things that they were able to note was a change in burial traditions, it seems, that burials were common in early and middle Gravettian people in Eastern Europe, but later there was a shift away from burying, and they're not sure why, they couldn't say anything else other than that, but according to the study, they were able to kind of track that that fell out of cultural fashion, it seems, Hmm. based on this jewelry. They were also able to confirm most of the cultural groups they identified in existing genetic data. So able to say, yep, this cultural group matches up with the time and location for this genetic population we've identified before. Right. We're seeing a similar pattern in genetic populations or gene flow, as it were, as we are with the materials they're using yes. for jewelry. So we're, we're able to kind of connect that we now have some genetic data for a population that lived here during this time, and we have some idea of the jewelry they were using. Yeah. They couldn't identify one Eastern European group that there's no genetic data for, so that's kind of a mystery group right now that maybe we can go find genetic data for Mm -hmm. in the future. And there were two cultural groups in Iberia that only had one 
piece of genetic data from the same individual. So there's two that we only have a bit of a single individual that has genetic data that might sync up with those two right. we, cultural we, we, groups. We have more material data than we have DNA for yes. some of these groups. So one of them we are missing completely for genetic information. So maybe we'll get to identify that later. And one we have very, or two we have very little. They did make a point to emphasize that connecting these cultural groups to the genetic groups we have is not saying that that's why they're distinct. Is that, you know, they, yes. their DNA did not distinguish the culture per se, but just that we are identifying these seem to be true groups. Right. That the, the material, the rituals, the tradition, the fashion, whatnot, seems to be different between these different related groups of yeah, people that were either tribes or families or small villages or towns whatever you would call it back then so this is just another layer on understanding the populations that were around throughout europe during this time that's very cool it's always really cool to get to get insights into how early people early cultures of humans were using the materials around them yes especially bones and rocks and fossils and how there were different tra- there were different fashions. Yes, like you'd go to another town, and those people have different clothing or different jewelry or different things like that. Well, and when when they note things like different teeth being used by different groups, it makes me wonder: like, were there not just different fashions, but differently shared taboos? You know, did you not use a material because you wouldn't ever consider to in this area or by this group of people? Right. And then another is just used to using that differently. You know, right. were there or, belief systems that were driving why you were and weren't using what yeah. you were using? Are these animals considered more important mm-hmm. or sacred or what? Or is it just that some really influential leader of the culture at one point yeah. popularized this fashion and it just stuck just around? brought fat fox teeth into fashion right? and it just became the thing <laughs> that defined your population for a long time. It's very neat. Yeah, humans are pretty cool. We're, yeah, we're, humans, we're neat. Humans are pretty cool. Well... Uh, speaking of stuff that has just exactly nothing to do with everything that you just <laughs> talked about, but uh, closer to what our episode is about, this is a plants episode. I've got news about algae. Ooh, nice. Specifically, fossil kelp. Oh, yeah. This is research by Stefan Keel et al. in the journal PNAS, and we will link in the blog post to a more uh, popular article by Ari Daniel in NPR. Kelp. Uh, which you may be familiar with, is large ocean brown algae. Yes. Uh, these big, certain macroscopic structures that are algae. They are they are sort of large grass-shaped or yeah. sort of tree-like tall ribbons oftentimes of this algae material. Sometimes almost vine-like with mm-hmm. like kind of leaves coming off of it. Kelp is famous for forming uh, biomes called kelp forests, mm-hmm. where there's just tons and tons of kelp. These are extremely productive ecosystems, especially in the North Pacific Ocean. However, uh, the evolutionary history of kelp is a little bit difficult to study because kelp, being algae, does not fossilize particularly well. Not very tough. The fossil record of kelp previously went back as old as about 14 million years old, and genetic evidence has suggested the origins of kelp around 34 million years ago, uh, roughly at the Eocene-Oligocene boundary. But again, we haven't had fossils that went back quite that far. 
This study reports fossils that go back quite that far. <laughs> Specifically, fossils of what are called holdfasts of kelp. Oh, right. So the structure of kelp, that, that long, tall body is the stem, uh, which is called a stipe. And it has blades, they're called blades coming off of it, which are kind of like leaves. And the whole structure, the stem, is anchored to the substrate, the sea floor, by root-like structures that are called holdfasts. Mm -hmm. So these mm -hmm. kind of hang on and dig into rocks and such. This study reports fossil holdfasts, the sort of root structures, preserved on ancient rocks. And also, it sounds like clamshells. Oh, that's, that makes sense. Of all the part to survive, that's that's probably the toughest part of the plant. Yes. The, uh, this is jumping ahead Algae. a little bit. Prior to this, the oldest known seaweed kelp kelp fossils are the body, you know, the uh, blades, and I think it said an air bladder mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. preserved. But yeah, most of the body of kelp is relatively soft tissue floating and swaying around in the water. This is potentially here a a different part of the body that is preserved and potentially something that is more preservable yes than the other parts of the body of kelp very cool these fossils come from washington state that's the north pacific ocean very cool and they are dated in this study to 32 million years ago which is right about that time that genetic evidence has estimated the origins of kelp this is not only the oldest fossil evidence of kelp, but lines up with those estimates. Mm -hmm. This is not only the time that the origin of kelp has been estimated, but the region of the world that it has been proposed kelp may have originated. This time period is notable for being a time of cooling global temperatures, which has also been suggested as a potential factor in what allowed kelp to start to rise to prominence. These fossils also have interesting things to tell us about early kelp. They noted in the paper that the structure of these holdfasts, apparently there are multiple different types of holdfast structures oh. in kelp today. Oh, okay. The ones they see are more like what we see in flexible stemmed kelp rather than stiff stemmed kelp. Oh. These may have been more flexible, maybe shorter stalks of kelp. These fossils are also associated with organisms. Like I said, they're, they're, the holdfasts are found growing on or around clams, barnacles, uh, forams. And the uh, authors note that the animals associated with these kelp fossils are different than what we see in kelp forests today. Oh, really? In particular, a lower diversity of organisms. Uh... That this is something that has changed over time that kelp has become associated with a different and more diverse regime of other animals in the ocean. The authors point out that this time, at this time, kelp may have been associated with and important for animals that it's not important for today. Notably, they make mention of desmostylians. Desmostylians are sort of manatee-like marine mammals mm -hmm. that are now extinct that lived around this time and which there has been question in the past of what were they eating? Yeah, yeah. Kelp was around at this time, so they may very well have been eating early members of the kelp lineage. The authors note that what seems likely from the evidence that exists so far is that kelp originates around this time and may have remained 
relatively simple. Uh, kelp ecosystems may have been relatively simple. And then it's estimated that modern styles of kelp leading more towards what we think of as kelp forests today might have originated around 14 million years ago or more recent around the time of or after the mid-Miocene climatic optimum. So we're seeing shifts in what kelp is doing over time associated with notable shifts in climate conditions on the planet. And along with that, changes in how kelp is interacting with other animals in the ocean. Very neat. I love the concept that the holdfasts line up with different styles of kelp. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it makes complete sense. You know, if you're a different shape up in the water, you probably need a different kind of anchor. That's true of boats today, that you can't use the same kind of anchor on every boat because they yeah. won't all work as well. But I'd, I'd never thought of it, and so that's very neat that they were able to glean that bit of info. Yeah, and like you said before, they do note in the paper, holdfasts are now a another potential avenue for a kelp fossil record yep, yep. that might be better at fossilizing than the other parts of kelp. So this is something we should keep our eyes out for. Very cool. I also like the note that there wasn't as much diversity in early kelp forests because it makes sense because they were new. So you didn't have a whole bunch of kelp forest specialists, which today there are tons yes. of organisms that you only find in kelp forests. That's where they make their home. They are super specialized for it. They don't live anywhere else because mm -hmm. they're such key environments now. Yeah, this paper puts forth the notion that kelp may have started out doing something fairly different, being more simple, and eventually became the foundation for those ecosystems later on. Very neat. Yeah, fossil kelp. That's, that's so exciting. Well, my next news is also in the water, but older. This is about a placoderm, an armored fish with a very weird face. Mm. This is researched by Melina Jobbins et al. in the Royal Society Open Science, and the article is in the conversation, so it is also by Melina Jobbins et al. This is description of a placoderm, which are those early armored fish ancestors, the some of the first jawed vertebrates, so the first with opening and closing mouths, very important for vertebrate evolution, that has an extremely long lower jaw. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm. This is actually not a new fossil. This was first described in 1957 from the Polish Holy Cross Mountains. Fish fossils, but that were broken, long, thin bones and were thought to be fins or spines from fish. The odd shape is what gave its name Alienacanthus. Later in the 1990s and early 2000s, they came across some more in Moroccan specimens that ended up in a museum in Paris, same sort of bony elements, and then later, which is where this study is coming in, from Poland and Morocco, which were finally identified as belonging to placoderm. This study, I believe, was describing part of those specimens that had part of the head and could actually describe more of the animal. This is part of the placoderm group of arthrodires mm -hmm. and is 365 million years old. The fossil is mostly the head and jaws, so not the rest of the animal, but they said it had a massive rounded head with a pointy snout and large eyes. The head and jaws reach about 80 centimeters long. Much of that is the lower jaw. So it has this long extended lower jaw 
that extended way past the mouth. So when the mouth is closed, the upper jaw ends and the bottom jaw keeps going. Mm -hmm. And the lower jaw is twice as long as the skull. Wow. That's severe underbite. Severe underbite. They said the world's longest underbite. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Is what they've been calling it. This is also noted for the fact that it had naffle plates, so tooth plates, with sharp teeth curved backwards in the mouth and continuing onto the lower jaw a bit. Huh. Outside of the mouth. So, and it's shown in the art, in the the news article. So check the link if you want to see it. So it has kind of a slightly toothed mouth, a toothed jaw outside the mouth. Yeah, it's got teeth outside. Yeah, and not sticking out like a sawfish teeth, just Mm -hmm. teeth, teeth, so to speak. This dentation and the large eyes suggest that it was trapping large uh, live prey, so catching prey and hunting it down and grabbing it with those little hooked teeth. The lower jaw is suggested to potentially be similar to a swordfish, which is, you know, the obvious uh, uh, comparison sure. of a fish with a long single part of its mouth. Yes, and there there are other ancient fish that have been found with similar long jaw structures. Yes. The thing that's kind of interesting about it is that most times you see elongation of the mouth, it's the upper jaw or both upper and lower jaws. Yes. It is not often the lower jaw. There is one modern fish that they mentioned called the halfbeak, which has a longer lower jaw, but their lower jaw is not as extreme. Their underbite is not as extreme as this fish's. This fish had 20% more lower jaw. Uh, so <laughs> the best at lower jaw. It was indeed the most extreme underbite yet known in a fish, at least. I'm assuming known in most vertebrates. Yeah, I can't think of anything else with a big lower jaw like that. It's also the oldest example of it. Uh, oh. Which makes sense because it's the early jaws. This is the age of fishes. Yep. This is when we first see things that have lower jaws. Mm-hmm. And this is the earliest example of elongated jaw. They noted the previous oldest record for elongated lower jaw was a shark, 310 million years old. So not too far, not as far off as I thought it would have been. Yeah, just a little younger. Yeah, which is ornithoprion. But the uh, lower jaw is not the only part that's unique. The upper jaw is also unusual among placoderms. It has slight ability to move independently from the skull Mm -hmm. so the top of the mouth can also flex it seems up and down potentially helping to accommodate for that extreme lower jaw but that's not something seen in other placoderms interesting so just this was a strange jawed fish all over a very weird fish at least in the face and that this new species alien acanthus is exciting both because it's unusual but also really adds to the diversity of jaw early jaws yeah and this is an unusual it's the kind of feature that you wouldn't expect to be as common as it is yes like we have fish today that do this that have the long jaw we have multiple lineages of modern fish that do that and it seems like a very weird thing but there's also several lineages of ancient animals Mm -hmm. that are known to do this it's a weird... Well, it's like feels like saber teeth. Yes. Right? That is something we don't really see in modern animals. But that's happened a ton of times, even though it's weird, like saber tooth cats, it seems like it's a winning strategy. And it's very fun to see an example like this where it's... Yeah, well, and here's the earliest and most ridiculous example of that. Yep. This got started early on, and they went super weird 
very early on. Yeah. And it's it can be such a confusing feature since it's not immediately obviously clear how it's helping them. Yes. Uh, until you see them use it to like stun prey and, you know, wrangle prey into catching it and stuff. But when you just glance, it's not immediately obvious why having a stick off the front of your face is going to help you hunt. Yeah. But it's been helping things hunt in the ocean for 400 million years. <laughs> for just as bad as long as they've had <laughs> ma- uh, jaws to hunt with. Yeah, well, yeah, they evolved jaws and they went, there's so many weird things we could do with this. Let's get started. <laughs> well, our last bit of news uh, about the same age, Ooh. Uh, just a little bit younger, but back to plants. Uh, <laughs> and this time, even closer to the plants that we're talking about in the episode. Now we are talking about land plants. And indeed, research with new insights into the shape of some of the earliest trees. I almost picked this one. I'm this excited. This one's cool. I'm excited. This is research by Robert Gastaldo et al. in the journal Current Biology, and we will link to a press release in fizz.org. Trees! We did a whole episode about trees, episode 73. Trees are real real tall plants Mm -hmm. on land. Trees and tree-like structures have evolved many times. The earliest tree-like plants show up in the Devonian around the time of that long-jawed fish Mm -hmm. and then become super diverse and common the next geologic period in the Carboniferous, giving rise to the earliest forests and changing life on Earth forever. That far. Imagine a world without trees and forests. That's a weird place. <laughs> so weird. Studying ancient trees has some difficulties. One of the main ones being we rarely get the body of the tree and the leaves of the tree at the same time. Yeah, trees don't just fall over and then the whole thing get buried and fossilize perfectly very often. Yes, so we can imagine a tree and the shape of a tree we don't usually understand get a, get a sense of the shape of a tree mm-hmm. in the fossil record. We might get a bit of trunk, we might get some branch, some leaves, but we don't often get them together. The the in particular, this study noting the trunk and the crown. Mm-hmm. The crown being the big uh, all the bunch of leaves yes. on the top. This study describes a new type of ancient tree preserved with parts of the crown of the tree. Uh, Something that is almost never seen in the fossil record. We've got the trunk with some of the leaf structure attached to it that tells us sort of what the top of this tree looked like. And it is weird. (laughs) The site that these fossils come from is called the Sanford Quarry, which is in New Brunswick, Canada, dating to the early Carboniferous around 350 million years ago, a little bit younger than your weird fish. This site is uh, the fossils are buried in a lake that seems to have been a rapid burial caused by uh, slumping after an earthquake. Okay, yeah. So it is a catastrophic burial that preserved these unusual fossils. Excellent. The remains include several specimens of well preserved trunk and leaves of the crown. The trunk is non woody, so this is not a woody trunk unbranching so just a straight up stem estimated to have been up to two and a half to three meters tall so you know up to 10 feet tall so not a huge tree and the trunk is narrow only about half a foot in diameter oh wow 16 centimeters a fairly narrow 
stem. Attached to this trunk, particularly toward the top, are hundreds of leaves arrayed, arrayed in uh, what the in the press release they described it as a bottle brush shape. Oh. Just leaves in all directions, sticking out in all directions. Uh, I will. There is a picture of it, how it's been reconstructed that I am showing Will yeah. right now. So this just thin trunk with then just leaves exploding in all directions. Yeah, bo- bottle brush is really... It also makes me think of a toilet brush. Yes. Yep. The preserved leaves attached to these trunks measure almost two meters long. Wow. Each, and they are partial leaves. The authors estimate that these leaves might have extended over five meters off of the trunk. They also then have secondary leaves branching off of them, it sounds like, creating this very dense array of leaves sticking far off the trunk and then intercrossing each other like that toilet brush, bottle brush shape, creating a crown volume that they estimated to have covered 20 to 30 cubic meters of space. Wow. Uh, Which is extremely interesting to think about, especially considering the half a foot across trunk. Yeah. This thin, this narrow trunk, and then just this, you know, 10 meters across crown of leaves up on the top. Very interesting. They gave this tree a new genus and species name. Sanfordia collis densifolia. Mm-hmm. They note the class of the tree is uncertain. Yeah. We don't know what group of trees this belongs to, but it is a distinct tree from anything else, including that weird tree structure. Mm-hmm. The shape of the crown and the trunk together is not something we see in other trees today or known in the past. Yeah. This is a different shape of tree. Like It's kind of got a palm tree Yes. vibe to it they compare it to palms and ferns mm-hmm. that kind of do a similar thing that weren't around it that those are much much later groups of plants exactly so it can't be them but it is kind of doing a similar similar situation yes the authors note that that shape of tree with those big expansive leaves is likely good likely well adapted for catching lots of light mm-hmm. obviously that's what trees do and also reducing competition underneath the tree. Yep. That you are catching all the light. Yeah. And you're you're getting, like with a thin trunk, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were able to grow up to that height quicker rather than slowly since they aren't making big thick trunks. Mm-hmm. You can grow up above your competition and then spread your umbrella out over yes. them. They also noted that the height and structure of this tree suggests that these were likely growing lower than a top-level canopy. Oh. That this may have been part of a secondary canopy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if so, this is some of the earliest evidence for multiple tiered forests. Okay. So this new tree, this, this shape of tree is not only an unusual type of tree that is an early experiment in tree evolution but also part of early structuring of forests yeah well i like that because you mentioned that the height's not ridiculous you know it's, yeah like 10 feet tall yeah it's not itty it's not a shrub but it's but that's not a huge tree it's not a big tree uh i i can 
I am only a, another person shorter than that tree. Right. I could knock that tree down. Yes. I could take that tree in a fight. Yep. But it's interesting to think that that's not a feature of it being an early tree, you know, that like trees hadn't gotten tall yet or something, but that that may be a feature of like, no, no, I'm this tall on purpose because this is the right height in the forest I am living at. Yes. Uh, that's very cool. So it's just a, it's a, it's very interesting when we find a fossil that raises a point about ancient life that we, and in this case, we means me, me personally, <laughs> hadn't thought to ask, which is, were trees shaped differently? Yeah. Apparently, yeah, there were different shapes of tree. Well, and it's it's such an easy thing to not consider because, you know, when you, when you said at the beginning that we don't often find all the parts of the tree all together... That may not sound like a huge deal right away, and you may think that the biggest problem of that is, oh, so you can't guarantee these are all from the same species. Right. And that's definitely a problem. We and that happens. We have to name them separately very often. But it also means that if I gave you a leaf and a branch and a trunk and said, all right, draw me the tree that this goes to, and you've only ever grown up around pines, mm -hmm. you're going to probably draw it like a pine, because that's what you think trees are shaped like. and. We are th used to trees shaping, shaped like modern trees. Right. Yes. <laughs> so this is our example of actually maybe not, and in this case, definitely yeah. not. This weird narrow trunked tree with fifteen foot long, yeah. long leaves sticking off the top of it. Now I want speculative tree evolution. I want like <laughs> speculative paleo art of different fossil plants. Yeah. How else could they have grown than what we expect? Like I said, uh, listeners, there is artwork of the shape of this tree in that link. So go check it out. That's a good one. Well, hey, now that we've got ourselves all excited about plants, let's ride this plant train. <laughs> tree. Tree all the way into the discussion. After the break, uh, we will be joined by somebody who knows way more about plants than we will for another hour plus of us being impressed and awed by <laughs> plants uh, as we are joined by Allie to tell us all about cacti. Stick around. <laughs> Funny. Hello, Allie. Hello, David. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. I'm thrilled to be here. How is your 2024 going? Well, it started with a leaky herbarium roof, but it is rapidly improving from there. Well, fantastic. <laughs> That's great. Real quick, in case this is anybody's first ever exposure to Dr. <laughs> Allie Baumgartner, uh, please introduce yourself. Why, hello. Uh, my name is Dr. Allie Baumgartner. I am one of the collection manager of vascular plants at the University of Michigan Herbarium. Basically, I am a plant librarian. And that is why we bring Allie on to uh, teach us all about plant stuff uh, for the episodes that Will and I don't want to have to prepare. Yes. <laughs> Allie, this episode's topic is a, a much requested topic. Many people are excited to hear about cacti, uh, including me and Will. Oh, yeah. Uh, as we were discussing before this off the mic, uh, Will and I know nothing about cacti. Very little. <laughs> as I was putting this together, I I love I love when there are topics when I'm 
that I'm pretty confident you don't know anything about because I have these moments of like, ooh, I can't wait for them to learn about this. <laughs> Cacti have the same appeal to me that we've discussed on the podcast before. I like weird derived things yes. that are highly specialized off of this is why I like snakes so much mm-hmm. in part is because they're very weird for vertebrates. They have done a very odd specialized thing like snakes. Cacti seem to me to be very unusual and specialized and extremely successful in doing the weird thing that they do. Mm-hmm. Yes. And also I feel like snakes and cacti coexist in a lot of places. So like they're, they're friends. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. and they're, and they're not a danger to each other. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They can be friends. They're not eating each other. They can, they can coexist. Exactly. This is, we are here to promote the snake cacti alliance. <laughs> yes. I'm here for it. <laughs> well, uh, let's start then. Uh, Allie, please explain for us what, is a cactus. I'm going to give you a very pedantic, unhelpful answer, and then I will elaborate into a also pedantic, but more helpful answer. Excellent. So pedantic, <laughs> unhelpful answer is cacti are members of the family Cactaceae. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. So we're all right. Start That's where somewhere. they get it from. Yeah. It's <laughs> all making sense. It's all so connected. Far. The, the funny thing about it is like, so cactus comes from a Greek, a Greek word for we don't know what we don't know what the original cactus was referring to presumably something spiky probably not well actually definitely not a cactus yeah which i find very funny but to give you a better answer (laughs) um cacti are a type of spiny stem succulent so they have you know very fleshy squishy well not squishy but verbose is not the word not rugose either they're big uh stems yeah. <laughs> big fluid filled yes they stems. thick yes they thick that yes 100 uh they're <laughs> extremely dry adapted they're very common in deserts if you visualize like you know the 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 american southwest you're you're thinking a cacti, right? Mm-hmm. You 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 have a good picture of them. If you've seen a Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner cartoon, <laughs> you've seen cacti. Exactly. So most people are broadly familiar with what a cactus is. Uh, once we get into the like the very nitty gritty, I could differentiate it between other things. But for now, they are stem succulents. They're dry adapted members of cactaceae. Which I already have confirmed. I was not actually sure it was a group or mm-hmm. not like. A, a tree situation. I was kind mm. of, I, I was kind of suspicious of like, is cactus a thing or is it a shape of plant? Is this a word we've given to many yeah. unrelated plants? So I didn't, I didn't actually know there was, I uh, maybe I knew that in the past, but right. uh, I didn't, wasn't positive that it was a cactus group. Wouldn't have been surprised either way. Yeah, exactly. Well, cacti strike me as the kind of, this strikes me as the kind of group of plant that I would assume there are many things that, we often point at and call cacti that are not cacti. And Allie is nodding eagerly. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, and this is why you probably had this impression of like, is a cactus like a, a, a single thing or many things? Because there are many things that are cactus shaped. So it is easy to, there are things that you may think is like, you know, oh, that looks like a cactus, but actually it's an imposter. Okay. So like agave is not a cactus. It looks vaguely a cactus, you know, adjacent, but it's not. So the most uh, notorious not cactus are the euphorbia 
So members of the genus Euphorbia in Euphorbiaceae, they are also stem succulents. They are primarily, not, not primarily, but they are especially found in, say, Africa. So if you go to Africa, you see something that looks cactus-shaped. That's probably Euphorbia. There's a couple other things. Um, Hoodia and Stapelia, they're in Apicinaceae. They're also found in arid East and Southern Africa and Madagascar. So unsurprisingly, there are cactus-shaped things in Africa, but they are not cacti. Huh. Okay. Okay. So another thing cacti have in common with snakes, <laughs> that there are many things that are not snakes that are easy to point at and say, oh, that's a snake. <laughs> yes. Like glass lizards or Sicilians and such. Uh, yes. So cacti are not quite as unique uh, as <laughs> they might seem at first. Right. It. I mean, it's, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit. It's a good shape. Yeah. Like, hmm. you know, you, you can't you, you can't beat it if you're if you're living in a desert or a dry, arid environment, which is why we see many, you know, multiple groups, very unrelated groups kind of focusing on this. Let's be cactus shaped. It's not stem succulent shaped. It's not just cactus shaped. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you've said a couple of things in this description so far that make me think that cacti might also have a more restricted distribution in the world than I I've realized. So please elaborate upon the diversity and distribution of cacti. So I'm going to give you some numbers and I, I, I don't know if I was surprised by them or not. So there are 127 genera of cacti. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know if that's higher or lower than I thought. That's yeah. also where I think that's lower. That that seems low. That, okay. that, that feels low for just what we typically deal with, with plants. There's usually just, Oh yeah. Yes. Plants are usually all over the place in a bunch of them. This is very true. Like snakes. Yes. He likes snakes. We need to do swamp plants next. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, well, don't worry. Crocs will get their love. Vines. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so there are less than 2,000 species of... That is not a lot. No. So it's about 1,700 species of yeah. cactus. Yeah, I know, right? But it's partially... I would argue because of the type of environment they live in and their distribution. So they are native to the Americas from Canada to Patagonia. And that's it with, there is an asterisk though in my, in my outline that you can't see with one singular exception. Oh boy. Right. One species has a distribution that continues into tropical uh, Africa and Sri Lanka. So oh. Ripsalis uh, uh, basifera is also found in tropical Africa and Sri Lanka. Other yeah. than that, everyone else is found in the Americas. Did we do that? No, is that that's, an introduced that's not, species? That's, that's not our fault. Our fault. Don't worry. This is the, the possum cool. of cactuses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one that escaped. I will I will tell you it is not our fault. Don't worry. I have a little note later on that says addressing the Ripsalis problem. Go fun. <laughs> Ripsalis so we'll is the it. one group of cacti that crossed the ocean and discovered the new world. <laughs> uh, opposite. It started <laughs> in the new world and found the old world. Yes, exactly. Um, so there are five main groups of cacti. I am going to discuss them from least cactusy to most cactusy. Okay. So we're going to do this a little bit differently. Hey guys, describe a cactus to me. Oh, it's the cactus. Ha it has like the big and it has like arms yeah, sticking out to the side. Yeah, it's the guy. 
This is a podcast, y'all. With our, well, yeah. What we're doing on on the camera right now Basically. is standing up with our body very straight and and sturdy, yeah. yep. and then our arms out to the side, bent at ninety degree angles, so it's, that our forearm is pointing yes. upward. It's that one little dude from all the Final Fantasy games? Yes, uh, Cactar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. or yeah. Lloyd for all of our Animal Crossing <laughs> yes. uh, friends. Okay, out there, I think important follow up. Where are the leaves? Uh, this aren't, one I know. Aren't they the spines? The spines are leaves. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 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 Good work, gentlemen. Well, like this guest, we got to stop bringing Allie on. She quizzes <laughs> us on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Edit out all the wrong answers that we said. <laughs> <laughs> so the least cactusy uh, group of cacti are the Lewenbergioidea. It includes a single genus, Lewenbergia, eight species. They are native to Mexico, the Caribbean, in part of southern Bra- or like southeastern Brazil. They are normally trees or shrubs, and they have persistent leaves, actual leaves. Hmm. They're kind of succulent, though. So, but they 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 also have little you know little spines, but they have they have straight up leaves. They don't necessarily they do not fit what you are thinking of when you think of cacti, and they have bark from early on in their growth. So they do not have uh, the stem stomata that you see in other members of cacti. Mm. So they don't have that like that smooth kind of leathery texture that you think of. Exactly. And they're, yeah, they don't have like the the, the green leather. No, these are, these are just plants, yo. Like that's it. When you say succulent. So for our uh, plant ignorant uh, uh, (laughs) audience like us, uh, succulents just means that the tissue of those leaves, for example, is plump and juicy basically yes. yep. it's succulent right like if you yes. bit as into it as opposed to sort of the flat leaf that yes. we think of exactly yeah, like our local yep, yes yes they have some i guess you could say they have some girth to them right like mm-hmm. they they they're not a perfectly flat piece of paper leaf so those are the least cactusy cacti so they're kind of the 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 most basal you know the the most primitive the most the closest to the original cactus that's them then we move into the group of colocacti I did not know what colo meant until I was making this outline. It means stem. Oh. So colo cacti, they have the stem stomata. They got stuff going on with their stem. They are the group of cacti that do that. So they are the colo cacti. Because I was like, cauliflower cacti? What is <laughs> yeah, this? Right? Like- <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's uh, the the subfamily with that is the periscoidea. There are two genera in there, Periscia, which used to be fi- paraphyletic. So basically, everything that had leaves in cacti, like in cactaceae, was put in the same genus. And it's been split oh. out into a couple of them. So there's Periscia, which is four, has four, four species. And there's Rhodocactus, which has five species. We're not talking very big numbers at all, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these are found throughout South America. They are also trees or shrubs. They also have persistent leaves. They have these succulent Mm. leaves. But their bark does not uh, develop until later on in their growth. So they they don't get bark until they're much more mature. Um, And they do have stem stomata. Gotcha. So stomata, uh, just so that people understand, stomata are the holes in that yep. we often think of in leaves 
that yep. allow for gas exchange. Correct. So that is, and if you don't have leaves in order to do your photosynthesis, you need to have those little holes in the stem in order to allow the CO2 inside in order to do photosynthesis. Yes, you must make your skin leaves. So this group is, has a very, ca- a more cactus-like stem until later in, so early parts of the development. Yeah. It's a bit more like a traditional cactus skin. A, li- a little bit closer, but also remember it has persistent leaves. Right. Like they, they, they can basically they can do both. This is if we're talking about transitional cacti. Mm-hmm. This is the transition from right. you just look like a tree to oh my god, that's a cactus. Also, the idea of a tree with succulent leaves is very odd because, like, when I think of succulents, I think of shrub height at most yeah because like most succulents we you find in like a a, a nur- you know plant nursery to buy mm-hmm. are short like a tall succulent leafed plant is something mm-hmm. i've not encountered before well you need to spend more time in south america i agree yeah, yeah. <laughs> i agree big big common descent trip yeah yes i support this uh and so now we're moving into the 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 cacti, like the cactusy cacti. Now we are into the core cacti. Yes. No, no. I would, oh, I love cactus. it. They are doing cactus impressions. I think they're raising their hand. It is lovely. <laughs> so these these cacti do full cam photosynthesis, and I'll go into that in a little bit. But that is the that is one of the the unique types of photosynthesis that that is very common in arid environments, and they are obligate like they do full cam photosynthesis they're not just facultative so the other two groups can do cam photosynthesis but they also do c3 which is like your your run-of-the-mill standard photosynthesis so this is where we're making the shift from i'm just a normal tree to i'm i you know i am uh, adapted to living in these very extreme environments so the first of these subfamilies is the uh, Opuntioidea. This is the group that has Opuntia, which is the prickly pear. So this this has 15 genera, roughly 220 to 250 species. So now we're getting into, into bigger numbers, but still not that big. Mm-hmm. So Opuntia go from Canada to Argentina. Wow. They can be geophytes. So they're really like basically... Uh, like not even ankle high you know like toe high little plants to cushions basically look like small pin pin cushions shrubs tree columnar cacti which is the impression that y'all have been doing (laughs) (laughs) they have if you've ever interacted with a prickly pear or if you've ever seen a prickly pear prayer oh this is fun prickly Mm -hmm. pear fruit you are familiar with the the unique type of spines that opunchoidia has so they have these minute deciduous barbed bristle spines so they're very small they're coming out of these these little areas uh, that i'll talk about a little bit later they're called glochids I saw them described as a special type of spine that can be described as pure misery because <laughs> <laughs> they're so small. They're re- they're barbed like they're they it, oh, they're so. I have been stabbed by these because I have a bad <laughs> habit of touching prickly pears because I think they're neat. <laughs> and those spines, like oh, they're so small, it's so painful. They, um, well, next time, beware. They yes, uh, don't <laughs> use the palm, use the claw. That's right. Uh, uh, so. <laughs> and I, I actually, I bring this up 
Uh, you said that these cacti have an American distribution. Yes. So when Baloo is singing about prickly pears in the Jungle Book, which Correct. ostensibly takes place in India, kind of, uh-huh. uh, is that incorrect? That is fundamentally incorrect. What the Jungle Book was wrong about? Yeah, no. Yeah. I know. Yeah, no. They're it definitely. It was also wrong about snakes. So we're yes. not, we're putting. <laughs> oh man, we are keeping this connection. <laughs> I'm gonna do this the whole episode. <laughs> so one of the interesting things about the uh, Apunchoidea is they have leaves, like actual leaves, but they shed them by maturity. And so you'll oh, see weird. these if you see like baby ones. They'll have like. They're not. They're not. Nor- they're not flat leaves. They're round leaves. So it kind of looks like it looks like there's something wrong with the plant because it's like these little like nubbins coming out uh, where the spines come from because uh, oh, they are yeah. leaves, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, like I said, they tend to shed those uh, at maturity. You don't see those in you know the, the the mature plants. You also you if you are familiar with prickly pear, they tend to have joints. Right. So they have like the paddles or just, you yes. know, different regions. So those are called uh, cladotes. So that, you know, that basically the jointed growth form. Their stems can be either round or flattened. So, the you know, the prickly pear has the flattened version. There are also round ones. They have mucilage cells. Which again, if you've ever had like nopales, which are from prickly pear cactus, they are so slimy they are mm-hmm. mu- so mm-hmm. mucilaginous kind of like owlish like yes which is also a stem succulent they have it for the same reason the mucilage uh helps abs- hold all this water inside yeah, it's a good way to store moisture exactly uh the thing about this this group though is they lack the anatomical characteristics that allow them to absorb a lot of water or easily distribute it intracellularly. So like for example, if we think about like like a saguaro cactus, you you think about it, it basically being a barrel, yeah, just being full of water. This this group can't do that. So they do it in other ways, such as with the the mucilage. Oh. There's the uh Mahunioidea has two, one genus two species, only lives in the high elevation of Chile and Argentina. They are described as mucilaginous cushions. <laughs> They're very small. <laughs> the last group of cacti is the Cactoidea. It contains 80% of known cacti. Like most of cactus diversity is in the cactoidea. Mm -hmm. So this group goes from the US to Argentina. So this stuff doesn't mess around with Canada, but it goes all the way down into Argentina, plus the rogue tropical Africa and Sri Lanka. (laughs) They are, so they are described as essentially leafless, but they're not truly leafless because they, in addition to the spines, they do have leaves that are roughly two millimeters long. What are those even doing? Nothing. I think I like, honestly, honestly, I think it's just, you can't completely get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like every now and then a spine just develops incorrectly and I, yeah. becomes a little leaf. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised, but yeah, they, they, they are as described as essentially leafless. I mean, you would have to be like nose to nose with a cactus Ouch. and that's exactly that's right. You would be being stabbed by spines before you would see the leaves. <laughs> the cactoidea are the ones that have the ribbed stems that allow them to expand in order to hold a lot of water. So they're basically barrels. 
Uh, like, like the whale throats to yes. yeah. expand. Exactly. So this group includes epiphytes, epiliths. They, they can live on other plants. They can live on rocks, climbers. Um, some of them actually even live in humid, more humid environments. So they're not just, you know, desert dwellers. Uh, and I mentioned addressing the Ripsalis problem. So don't worry. It's not our fault. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. It's, it's birds. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Always messing stuff up for everybody. Yeah. And they, because they actually have an incredibly long history in uh, tropical Africa, Madagascar, and Sri Lanka. And so there's actually like genetic diversity between the ones that are in, you know, Africa, Madagascar, Sri Lanka versus the ones that are uh, elsewhere. And these, this whole, uh, you know, long distance distribution is helped by the fact that they can self pollinate. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if, they the, could, if you just get a small group somewhere, they're yeah. good to go now. Yep, exactly. Or even if you have one, it can become a small group of yeah. them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so don't worry, we didn't do it. Uh, but it is really interesting b- that there is this singular group because if this is, you know, it's easy to say, it's, it, it kind of complicates the story in interesting ways because it's easy to say, yes, this is just the Americas. Just kidding. One species. Right, yeah. With one exception. It's <laughs> kind of weird that only one species was able to utilize birds yeah. so effectively. Uh, and that that wasn't something that showed up in other cacti. That's that's very, very intriguing. Yeah. No, and I, I couldn't tell you exactly why it was this one that could make the make the cut. But hey, good on you, Ripsalis. You're, you're doing a good job. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting to be... To learn that cacti are almost exclusively a America's mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. because that's something that I'm very familiar with coming up with animals. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I tend not to think of plants as being quite as range restricted. Most a lot of the plants that we've talked about mm-hmm. on the podcast before are groups that are like, yeah, th- this is a group of plants, but they're plants. They're everywhere everywhere well and that's that's something that i find i talk about this a little bit uh later on but this is something that i'm really interested in i love the plants that are not cosmopolitan for Mm -hmm. whatever reason yeah i personally have a a soft spot for a gondwan a good gondwan in distribution like (laughs) if they just are found in the southern hemisphere i'm gonna love that so much because you know the most common plants especially trees but the most common plant groups tend to be cosmopolitan yeah in and in general there are fewer things that are restricted to the northern hemisphere there are more things that are restricted to the southern hemisphere so the things that we know like you know tend to genuinely be common in a lot of places we don't tend to have a lot of things that are only here but i i'm thinking about it being just restricted to you know the western hemisphere in this way that's like a hummingbird thing, right? Like genuinely, I associate with animals. Yeah, true. It's also, to go back to my recurring comparison, it's also a rattlesnake thing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is something, rattlesnake, which I've been thinking the whole time, rattlesnakes, which are also <laughs> restricted to the Americas and very common and successful in arid environments. Yep. Yeah. I, I love this. I've, I'm coming to the conclusion that, you know, cacti, snakes, this is a match made in heaven. I didn't know about Cacti are quickly becoming my favorite plants <laughs> over the course of this discussion. <laughs> both have pointy bits you want to avoid. Both have pointy bits. This uh, is both so Both are filled true. with water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, is, this is so um, true. 
Allie, we have been sort of uh, touching upon and dancing around this question of the adaptations of cacti that make them uh, unusual. And I, for one, am impatient and would like to hear more. <laughs> what? Tell us, tell us about the physical attributes and adaptations of cacti. I would love to. So in uh, preparing for this episode, I spent a lot of time on the angiosperm phylogeny group website. It is a, it's a very, it's an old internet kind of website. Mm-hmm. Like it's hard to read and there's just a lot going on. But there are some sassy little like statements thrown out in a lot of these descriptions that I'm really enjoying. Uh, that's where I, that's how I found out about the glow kids uh, being misery. But this is how this is the sentence, the single sentence summary of the traits of cacti. Cactaceae can be recognized by their usually stout and very fleshy stems, axillary aerials of spines and hairs. Flowers that are that usually have an inferior ovary, and many stamens and petals, and the fruits are fleshy. Okay, that's it. That's that's it. That's cactus. Yeah, I'll define things. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so the most important thing that I need to define from that statement is what an aerial is. Yes. Once I describe this, you're going to be like, "Oh, that's what that is." Okay. So broadly speaking, an aerial is a highly modified branch structure on a stem. Okay. So remember, spines are modified leaves. Mm-hmm. Leaves grow on branches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so basically the little like nubbins, the little areas where the spines and the flowers and the fruits come from, that's the aerial. Oh, that's what that is. Gotcha. But like, (laughs) you know, when you look at, if you've ever looked at a prickly pear fruit, the fruit has it too, right? Mm -hmm. They kind of have that like weird, like studded texture. Mm -hmm. So they can have leaves and even the least cactusy cacti, they also have aerials. Their leaves are also coming out of these aerials, um, which is how we group them all together. But yeah, so they can produce flowers, they can produce spines, they can produce leaves. They're pretty cool. I'm I'm a fan. So, I approve. So the little nubbins are just itty bitty bitty branches. Yes. Because it's a stem, right? Yeah. So you got the little tiny branch coming off with the little tiny spines, which are the leaves. Yeah. Right. They're highly modified. A cactus is a plant that is mostly trunk. Yeah. Yes. Pretty much. They are they're stems. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> So I talked a little bit before about CAM photosynthesis, and I have mentioned it. You know, we did a whole podcast on photosynthesis. We did, 145. But to very, very briefly summarize what CAM photosynthesis is. So C3, that is your run of the mill. Bring in um, CO2, combine it with water and nutrients, boom, light, you make a sugar. CAM photosynthesis is when you separate the steps of photosynthesis in time. So because they're living in these arid environments, they don't want to open up their stomata in the middle of the day. That's a good way to dry out. So instead, they will only open up their stomata at night to bring in the CO2, basically store it. And then when the sun comes out, then they can combine, they can use the the light, combine it with the CO2 that they've stored in order to make sugar. So that is CAM photosynthesis. The cool thing is that cactus seedlings actually start out 
doing C3 photosynthesis. And then they switch to CAM during their development. Hmm. Oh, okay. Weird. Yeah. Is that just because they need to grow faster and more aggressively or? So CAM is C4 and CAM um, uh, photosynthesis. It takes more energy to do it, but it's more efficient. So before you like if once you're starting, you know, you're just trying to like get every, you know, you don't have much energy you can put in. So you're just trying to get and they grow so fast. Yeah. Like cacti grow so fast. So they're not actually doing C3 for very long. And relatively, they're very small. So it's not like they're going to be losing a whole lot of water by using C3 photosynthesis versus CAM. But yeah, basically, they're like, we got to jumpstart this growing thing. And then once they get bigger, then they can uh, switch to CAM. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty neat. Uh, if our uh, if listeners, if you want to hear more about the photosynthesis, episode 145. Also, this came up in a big way on episode 38 when we talked about grass. Yes. Mm. So listeners can refer back to those as well. Uh, it's really hard to talk about plants and not to talk about photosynthesis. That's why we did a whole episode of this and now we don't have to talk about it. <laughs> exactly. Another cool thing that is very common in cactaceae is calcium oxalate. Do you remember what calcium oxalate is? Absolutely. But for the sake of the listeners, please uh, explain Ask it for it. everybody who so And for we, me. And for we me. T- <laughs> so we talked about this in the plant defense episode. Mm, okay. And this was... That was 175. That pause was for me to say episode 175. <laughs> That's exactly it. what that was for. Um, so calcium oxalate is the compound that that if you eat it, will rip up your mouth. So remember right, right. when I was talking about the, 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 the dumb cane, that basically if you eat this plant, you can't speak because it tears up your throat and everything. It's real bad. So uh, cacti have calcium oxalate. So core cacti in particular metabolize some form of this. I saw it described as some cactaceae accumulate positively massive amount of calcium oxalate crystals. For example, they make up 85% of the dry weight of cactus senilis. Wow. Whoa. It's not a plant. It's just calcium oxalate at that point. Wow. Which is... Crazy because I know that like like when we were talking about the prickly pears earlier, uh, those paddles. When I think of them, I think of tons of videos I've seen of people feeding them to tortoises. Yeah, uh, because they're common. They're they're a food for them. And well, it's, so, a, it's a food for us. You can eat the nopales. Yeah. So not all of them are these wild levels. Uh, and I mean, spinach has uh, calcium oxalate in it, and we can you know we can eat spinach. But why is Popeye so tough? That's why he's so tough. Oh, okay. He spent the last several years building up an immunity to calcium yeah. oxalate. Yeah. I got Allie with that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so to build on that, a study that included other members of the order that cacti are in, but not specifically cacti, uh, showed that calcium oxalate crystals can be broken down to produce CO2 during the day when the plant is stressed. And then reform at night. So they're a store of resources as well. Exactly. So this can be another uh, reserve of CO2. And this is also kind of like cam cycling in a way. So it Mm -hmm. would make sense that, you know, this is, you know, another way of doing this. Well, and and like uh, that also gives another reason to evolve such high levels. Because I was having the question of why do you need to be made out of so much mouth glass when you also are covered in spears. 
Right. Yes, exactly. But if you're using that as another, uh, for a, a secondary purpose, then yeah. there's a whole other reason to have as much of it as you can. Exactly. Because it's a, it's a secondary co- me- metabolite. Like it, it's work for the plants to make that. So like it's got to have another reason other than don't eat me. But in addition, when a cactus dies, the calcium oxalate returns to the soil as calcite, which also adds carbon back to the soil. So the circle of life. Mm-hmm. Very good job, cactuses. I am a big fan. So cacti tend to be animal dispersed in general. So typically birds, they have very tasty fruit. I mean, I'm going to keep talking about prickly pear. They have like in general, they tend to have fleshy fruits. They tend to have these tasty fruits. Uh, But sometimes they'll just stick to animals like their whole branch will just stick to animals. Yes, I've seen pictures of that. Just (laughs) ripping off one of those paddles and then just just walking around with a piece of cactus on you. Exactly. So I I, lo- I love that those are the options. Either you can it, either on the inside of the animal or on the outside of the animal. Well, Both work. It's yeah. also the two ends of the spectrum of enjoyability. So like, yes. here's this sweet, succulent, juicy fruit. If you could just poop these seeds out somewhere down the line, that would be lovely. Versus yeah. slap. Yes. All right. <laughs> there you go. I'm with you now. Take me. Take me, <laughs> yes. mighty steed, to my new home. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I quite enjoy the the image of it, of the the mighty steed being like an alpaca. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's go. We're, we're just <laughs> strapped to the thigh, <laughs> barbs. Oh, so uh, a theme that is emerging here that is not unexpected is that cacti are highly specialized for a very unusual lifestyle. Uh, they are doing something that plants don't typically do. Uh, what? Tell us more. What allows cacti to be these desert and shrubland, arid environment specialists? Yeah, like synonymous with desert when we have a mental image of a desert. Yeah, yes. not just good at desert. Yeah, that's that's what exhibit. They're like penguins to the arc to the to the pole. Cacti to deserts. Yes. Yes. Peak desert. So the reason they can be peak desert is because they do have a lot of these uh, these specializations that allow them to do this. First and foremost, unsurprisingly, is the fact that they have spines. So spines are highly modified reduced leaves. So basically, they're like, I can't lose water. That will kill me. Well, then I don't need these leaves. I will prevent things from eating me. They will become spines. So they have lost their, most of them have lost their true leaves, have now have these spines. The pros of that prevents water loss vers, uh, via uh, vapotranspiration. It also protects against herbivory. But if you don't have leaves, you can't use them for photosynthesis. You have to so find the, another so the, way. The trade-off here is that a big, broad leaf is a, a faucet. You're yeah. losing yes. water to the environment. That's yes. as much surface area to mass as you can get is a right. sheet of paper, which is yes. fine if you're in a rainforest or even yes. a temperate forest. Yes. But it's very important. That, so they're sacrificing that area, which otherwise is very useful for photosynthesizing. In fact, that's what leaves are for. Exactly. Exactly. That's the whole point of them. Uh, so obviously they need to find another place to photosynthesize. And that's where the stem comes in. And part of the reason they can do this is because they live in these open environments. They're not, there's no canopy. They're not being shaded. They can put their, put their arms out and reach up to the sun, sun salutations over here. (laughs) Um, So they, 
The reason that cacti have green stems is because that's where the chlorophyll is. That's where they're doing their photosynthesis. So they have uh, stem stomata. They have these, you know, basically breathing holes in their stem. Their stems are often uh, thickened and fleshy. They can store water, either actually just storing water or they have these mucilaginous cells. The stems are often Again, ribbed, which allows for expansion, so you can hold a whole lot more water. Uh, that's the cool. Plants are basically modular. I'll talk about this again later. So they can do things like that. Like they're kind of like Legos yes. in that way. Um, so, like, yes, I will put in these joints so that I can expand because the cell walls means that they can't. The cells can't really expand individually. They have walls, so they have to do it structurally. Yeah, they have to mechanically expand, not just exactly. swell like we do. Yes, exactly. Uh, so again, <laughs> they have these uh, this mucilage, which retains water, like aloe. They are often round, especially mm-hmm. the little ones. Uh, and this minimizes the surface area to volume, which maximizes water storage. They are barrels. Yep, <laughs> I've yep. said this before. Cacti or barrels. Which is, like, I love that there is such a one-to-one of, like, yeah, that's a good storage structure. And plants are like, yeah, we've known that for a long time. This is how you store liquids. This is great. Exactly. Exactly. So cacti have actually very short growing seasons and very long dormancies, which makes sense because if you think about a desert – it's unbearably hot during the summer and just bitterly cold in the winter. So you don't really have these very, very long uh, uh, growing seasons. But to, to deal with this, they will rapidly germinate. Um, some will germinate inside the fruit. Whoa. Yeah. They don't mess around. Like they, they gotta, they gotta get big enough to survive very quickly. So they, yeah. I think it was saying that like within three days of like starting the process, they can be fully germinated, which like if you've ever like did a school project where you germinated the bean, man, it's much slower if you're not trying to like race the clock. (laughs) So cacti are like aphids. Yeah. They're born already ready to produce the next thing. Well, and that's, that's not a, like, cause when I think of fast growing, I think of like vines. Yeah. You know, like they're really or something. Yeah. They're, they're really good at getting up into a place very quickly and spreading out. Uh, cactus is in a shape that I would have attributed to fast growth because that's mm. a very it's a very dense shape, as we were yeah. just saying. It's all about volume to surface area. It's that's a little chunky plant. Yeah. The fact that they are fast growing is very impressive. I love them. They're so cute. Not cuddly, but quite cute. Uh, so they also, because they are living in these 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 arid environments, they have to resqu- respond incredibly quickly to rainfall. Because, like, you only get one shot. Do yep. not miss your chance. Um, so uh, they have very shallow but very extensive root systems, right? They spread out really far, but they are very close to the surface. Because they're not going down for groundwater. No, exactly. They actually, one of the things I came across was, um, okay, so when you're talking about plants, you have the shoot apical meristem, which is the top part that it's growing from. And you have the root apical meristem, which is, the the where the roots are growing from so the tap root in cacti often has determinate growth 
it can't grow forever. It doesn't need to grow forever. It basically just gets down deep enough to do its job and then it spreads out at the surface. They also have what are called rain roots, which are basically little rootlets that will develop after after it rains and then will die off after the ground dries. They are okay, just yeah, there yeah. Huh. to collect the rain. Wow. Right. So like they're they're not messing around. They are highly efficient. Uh, I talked already about CAM photosynthesis. Uh, that is, you know, by separating the steps in time, you can make sure that you are minimizing the amount of water loss that's happening during the day. One of the things that I did not realize and actually is utterly counter, uh, counterintuitive to what I thought I knew about cacti. Most cacti are not desiccation tolerant, meaning they can't completely dry out. Which, right, when you're thinking about like, oh, you're a desert specialist, you are an arid environment specialist, of course you can dry out. And no, they can't. So they have to put in a lot of effort to stay hydrated. Yes. So either, you know, collecting anything, you know, any, any amount of precipitation. So they have adaptations for dew and fog, like any amount of moisture that they can get, they are, they're going to try to absorb. And they have all of these adaptations for storing the water once they get it. So like they can't dry out, it will kill them. They're also not salt tolerant. Gotcha. Which like, I guess I kind of just assumed they would be because that just seems like that's a, also a difficult environment to live in. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can handle that one, too. Right. <laughs> They're extremophilic plants. Yeah. So you just kind of assume that they can yeah. put up with anything. Yeah. But that's that's not the case. Hmm. Which which is actually uh, kind of uh, nice because they have there's that joke of. I can I couldn't even keep a cactus alive. I have such a bad green thumb. Right. And the fact is like, well, actually, cactuses are they're very good at this kind of environment, but there are things they are not good at. Yes. You know, there are things they couldn't handle. Right. Uh, exactly. And, eh, don't it, don't it, worry if you've killed I've killed a cactus. It happens <laughs> to the best of us. It's okay. Uh but yeah, some of them can grow, like I said, as epiphytes or as lianas in relatively humid forests. So they're not, you know, they don't necessarily have to grow in these deserts. They can live in, you know, relatively humid environments. I bet those are much happier cacti, gotta say. But also, you know, I mentioned multiple times that this range goes all the way up to Canada. Yeah. Uh, So some species are cold tolerant to negative 20 degrees Celsius. Wow, that's very different. I'm getting very, I'm getting penguin vibes <laughs> because I mentioned penguins as being sort of we, yeah. we associate them with the South Pole with Antarctica, yeah. but of course, as we we have discussed, we did a whole penguin episode. That was episode 108. There are tropical penguins. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. not the only place that they go. I didn't know that cacti are also like this, and you yeah. could have cold cacti. It, it's wild. I remember seeing cacti when i was living in south dakota like you had to be careful if you walked across a field because there might be a cactus in it like i saw them in, when i lived in uh, colorado too and those are places with desperately cold winters mm-hmm. so like i never really thought about the fact that like oh yeah no they they serve they they survive they can handle that they might not be happy but they can actually they can actually cold harden relatively quickly so like man yeah. cacti i'm i'm getting more and more attached to you 
Well, and it also makes sense because it's it was one of the fun facts I remember learning as a kid and has just stuck in my head that tundras are also one of the lowest precipitation, you know, mm-hmm. least amount of rainfall. Right. That's a desert. It is a desert. That yes. You can have cold deserts. You know, yes. desert doesn't just have to mean unbearably hot. It just means very, very dry. Which I was going to ask, are these cold tolerant cacti also living in dry, cold environments, or are these cold and humid cacti? So these are going to be cold and dry cacti. Basically, they're living in the same sort of places that you're seeing C4 grasses, which actually makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. So they're still desert dwellers. They're just cold desert dwellers. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love them. Like they're this this was a lot of fun digging into you know, what is a cactus? Because I thought I knew. I kind of knew, but there were some things I definitely did not go, know going into this. Very cool. That is extremely cool. I guess that makes sense that because you were mentioning that desert you know, classic desert, the hot desert that we think of, they are hot in the daytime. In the warm parts of the year. Yes. Mm-hmm. But even they're very cold in the in the in nighttime. They yeah. get cold in the winter. So even those cacti have to put up with very mm-hmm. cold conditions. And as you also mentioned, they're doing most of their work in the in-between time. Uh-huh. Where they're not like at the peak of the summer and peak of the winter, they can't. So it actually makes a whole lot of intuitive sense that desert, that cacti could also thrive in a place that's cold most of the time. Yes. Because even the desert dwellers, the hot desert dwellers are dealing with that. Yeah. No, they're they're tough. Like, they're doing it right. <laughs> well, I feel like I understand cacti uh, in the modern day way better. Allie, I would love for us to talk about cactus evolution and deep history uh, let, let's talk about fossils and all that exciting stuff. Uh, what do you say we do that after the break? Sounds good to me. Sounds good. Stay tuned. All right, Allie, let's talk about cactus evolution. Please begin by telling us where cacti fit on the plant tree of life, so to speak. When I was looking into this, I was desperately trying to find a plant that they were related to that you would have heard of. (laughs) Good luck. So that tells us, uh, that tells me a lot of plants that it's not related to. Well, not not that many plants. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... When we're talking about cacti, cacti are in the order Caryophyllales. So that is the order that includes cacti, which includes many families. So according to APG4, so the angiosperm phylogeny group version 4, they are most closely related to, so within the whole order, they are most closely related to Portulacaceae, which is the purslane family, but it only includes the genus uh, Portulaca. That's it. Okay. The Anacampsoratesi, which includes three genera, which was also in the, it used to be included in the f- previous family. And the Talinaceae, which is two genera, 28 species. That's it. So they, so they aren't related to much. Not closely. <laughs> right. Like if you look at their family tree, their, their little corner of it, there's, they are by far the largest cat, or excuse me, the largest family in that 
in that whole part of the the order. So they don't really have a lot of close relatives. Hmm. Which is kind of surprising for such specialized group that they are the one that outnumbers their close relatives. Yeah. Like that's not that's not what you typically expect from I became specialized to a very harsh environment and now and I am also more numerous than all my close relatives. Right. Exactly. No, it's it is very strange. But if we look more distantly, there are plenty of plants in the same order that you have heard of. Carnations are in the same order. Amaranths are in the same order. So ice plants, which are a kind of a small succulent, you probably, you might have seen them, but not known their name. Beets are in this order. Hmm. And most, eh, many carnivorous plants. Oh, there are three. I know there are three different uh, families of carnivorous plants in the same order. Opposite ends of, of the family sure. tree. So not super close cousins, but no. closer than most other plants. Yeah. Which is, I mean, good family. Yeah. Ah, I bet we talked about all those in episode 105. Mm-hmm. We definitely did. Yeah. So, that, But in terms of who are cacti related to, the answer is kind of not a lot. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's pretty good to know. Now, at the top of our discussion, we talked about how there are a lot of things that are not cacti. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like there are many other groups of plants that have developed very sort of similar shapes and adaptations. And I get this is a question I should have asked before we did the break. But do you know, are those other groups exhibiting basically the same sort of adaptations as cacti? Do they have the photosynthesizing stems and the reduced leaves? Yes, and I will be discussing this later. So oh, put fantastic. a pin in that. Oh, well, wonderful! <laughs> I'm glad. Put a modified leaf in. It. Uh, put a put a put a <laughs> put a spine put a in that needle in it. Well, great. Well, in that case, uh, please start talking to us about the evolution of cacti. What do we know about the evolutionary history of cacti? Cacti have a absolute diversity in growth forms, right? Like there are so many different ways to be a cactus. You have you know, lianas, you have actual trees and shrubs, but you also have these little pin cushion things. There are epiphytes. Like There are just so many ways to be a cactus. And that diversity and growth form has been really helpful. And that's, we've, we've seen this explosion, but they've, they've been shaping really well in many different ways for a long time. Uh, but it's honestly the flowers of cacti that are some of their key innovations because they are flowering plants. So the flowers are kind of important. So specifically, especially in the Cactoidea, which is the largest subfamily, they have really, they've had all these innovations in the shape of the flower. Specifically, they tend to have a very long floral tube. And this has allowed them to have a much greater diversity of pollinators, especially birds and bats. Yeah. I guess that makes a lot of sense that you would want to be able to utilize a wide variety of pollinators, especially if you're living in habitats where not a lot of animals are doing well. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so especially, you know, bats are going to be active at night so it might be beneficial mm. to you know be able to open your flowers at night it's going to take less energy it's not going to immediately wilt the flower but it's really it's really interesting so there are there is evidence of approximately so within cactoidium 10 b to hummingbird pollinator shifts so 
used to be pollinated by bees, now pollinated by hummingbirds. It's happened at least 10 times. Cool. And at least five times you've had to shift from bees to moths. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Right. So like they are they are innovating <laughs> the yeah, pollination yeah. game. Another thing that they can do, another thing that they do in order to attract these uh, diverse pollinators is they have some some have extra floral nectaries on the aerials. So the same place that is giving us our leaves, our spines, our flowers, our fruits, we can also have extra floral nectaries. So extra floral nectary means nectar not in a flower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's another way of enticing things to come and be able to like, you know, slather them with pollen or whatever you're trying to disperse. And the thing about it, too, is that in general, we don't necessarily really think about cactus flowers. They definitely do. And they're very pretty and they're Mm -hmm. super variable. So shout out to the cactus flowers. They are really putting in the effort. Well, with those extra uh, nectar areas, you're just a hummingbird feeder at that point. Yes. <laughs> with lots of little uh, pots of, of, of sweet liquid. Exactly. Exactly. It, they are full on bribing their pollinators. Yeah. Which, once again, makes sense because in an area where you're not necessarily going to be in a densely populated habitat, you really need them to want to seek you out and to to stop when they find you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you can make it worth it. Yes, very cool. So to answer the question that you asked me, David, about, hey, this cactus shape, tell me more. So I have my note here. The succulent growth form, so not just cacti, but everybody who's, you know, all succulent. So we're talking aloes and agaves and everyone that falls under this group. That radiated and diversified in the late Myopliocene. So we are seeing this pattern in general, independent of groups, diversifying in that time. And they're all kind of uh, coming into this same um, this same shape. So they're doing it in much the same way. They are they have these, you know, especially in the stem succulents, mm-hmm. you have these stem stomata. You, you're green to photosynthesize. You're maybe not doing things exactly the same way, but there is this suite of characters that we see associated with this transition to uh, these more arid lifestyles. Uh, and we see it happen all around the same time, which is really interesting. That is, and now this is a time for our listeners who remember the trends of the Cenozoic that we are around the world seeing a trend in more arid mm-hmm. environments. Yeah, things drying out. Exactly. So it makes a whole lot of sense that at this time we would see this diversification. Uh, one of the things that we see in throughout all of the groups of, of the Cactaceae is this increased water use efficiency. In general, even the least cactusy cacti are really water efficient. Uh, which is unsurprising. So in the uh, the leafy cacti, so the rhodocactus and friends, they have high photosynthetic water use efficiency. So basically the water that they're using in photosynthesis, they're using it very efficiently. And they have very high minimum leaf water potentials. Basically, it's easy for them to move water up from the le- between the leaves and the stem. 
and they have very conservative snow model behavior. So they're not just opening them willy-nilly. They're very conservative with when the stomata are open. Uh, and they pretty much, they primarily will open the stomata only when there is available water. So either at night or after a rain. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, they know that there's going to be water to replace this, the water that they're losing to the atmosphere. Cool. Very, which, which I like that. It's just your, your plumbing is, is more efficient. Yes, exactly. Like on a fundamental level, even the, the least cactusy cacti are more water efficient than your average plant. Interesting. And it sounds like this is something that many plants have done. Yeah. That even though cacti are their own, a very sort of particular Mm -hmm. specialized group, there are a lot of other plant groups that have followed a very similar evolutionary trajectory. Exactly. If you were to look at the euphorbias, uh, so the euphorbiaceae, the ones that I the we find in Africa that I discussed at the beginning, I I would be willing to bet that they probably have a very similar sort of trajectory because they came to pretty much the, the you know the same uh, conclusion round about the same time and honestly in very similar kinds of environments because they're yeah. doing this in Africa. Uh, so yeah, this is this is how you do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it sounds like uh, in terms of understanding the evolutionary history, cacti, like Will, like you were saying earlier, they are a very specialized group without a lot of close cousins. And oftentimes what can end up happening is you get a group that is really specialized and unlike anything else. And that makes it really difficult to have a sense of what steps did it take to get to this version? Yes. But with the variety of cacti that you were explaining before, it sounds like among the living members of this group, we have living examples of several different versions of being a cactus, which represent reasonable stages that cacti can have taken over the course of their evolution. Yeah, degrees of specialization. Yes. Basically, yeah, we have this this gradient of degrees of cactusness. Um, yeah. from and and that's really helpful um given that we don't uh, necessarily get a lot of help from that in the from a deep time perspective. Right. So this brings me to the question. <laughs> I assume so far a lot of what uh, has uh, research has gone into cactus evolution is genetic, is comparing different groups from around uh, their distribution and getting a sense of well, how far back did you diverge? When does this group originate? Correct. Correct. Uh, I have been waiting the whole episode. I've been so <laughs> excited to ask this question, Allie. Please tell us about the fossil record of cacti. What do you think so the fossil record is? <laughs> in preparing for this episode, because I, anytime we're preparing an Allie episode, I want to give Allie as much help uh, getting started as I can. So I like to put together a draft outline. And I'm like, all right, here, here are sort of the big questions that I think will be good to talk about in the episode. And when it comes to plant episodes, often I don't know anything about them. So I will like, I'll do a little quick Google search to be like, all right, are there like overviews online Mm. that I can get an idea of like, what are the main points that should be included? And when I was doing that, the (laughs) I I was like cactus fossils. What is there to talk about? And the internet told me that there are no cactus fossils. (laughs) Allie, (laughs) as our (laughs) plant expert, are there cactus fossils? Okay. So, 
There That's a great in- start to an answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in 1944, a new species of cactus from the Eocene Green River Formation. So it was originally dated to be between 50 and, uh, and 40 million years old of Utah was uh, described it was called eopuntia douglasi it's a beautiful compression fossil it definitely resembles opuntia Uh, a a really fun quote from the paper is your fossil most strongly suggests cactus relationship it may of course turn out to be of some other affinity it has always seemed strange to me that the line of development followed by the cacti has not been paralleled in say the lois ac or some other related stock perhaps your plant is a relic of some other but related group now extinct in 1962 it was reassigned to Cy- uh, cyperocytes which is in cyperaceae which are sedges Hmm. Uh, so you know like a grass uh it was actually a rhizome so which is basically like a an underground like stem structure so so briefly very briefly (laughs) there was a cactus fossil record for 18 years (laughs) yes and it turned out and the thing about it, it actually makes sense so it was found in the green river formation Mm-hmm. Based on the other material found in the Green River Formation, it's not you wouldn't actually expect to necessarily find a cactus, right? So, but you would expect to find a sedge. So there was a cactus fossil identified once in the forties, yes, and then it turned out to not be a cactus. Yes, is that the whole cactus fossil record? Um, yeah. So there <laughs> are there's an archaeological record of cacti. Okay, that's sure. nothing. Not yes. nothing. <laughs> so the I know, right? So the oldest cacti fossils are twenty four thousand years old. Wow! Whoa! That's wild. Preposterous. We've had episodes. The Sicilians episode. Yes, episode one sixty two. I, I was delighted to get to describe every single Sicilian fossil that had ever been found. Go through the entire <laughs> record space we know episode, of. Because there were like 11. Yes. I don't know that we have ever had an episode <laughs> talking about a group of life with no fossil. Record. Yeah, I was thinking about this as I because I have definitely talked about plants with very limited fossil records yeah, before. Absolutely. But I have never... I have never come across a fossil record that like only goes back into modern human times, right? Like anatomically modern humans are older than the fossil record for cactaceae. Yeah. Which is wild. Do they just... Are they not woody enough to, oh, to we'll petrify? Get, we'll get into that. Don't say, worry. Yeah, yeah. I, let's, I, let's I have a whole about section that. about that. Because, Don't because worry. Because that is an, an extra, extraordinarily unusual circumstance mm-hmm. that yes. raises the question why not yes. it's not yes. that cacti arrived on a spaceship twenty four thousand years ago and that's well, where the record uh, started they bury their dead that's right that's <laughs> rid of them. um what's the what's going on what is preventing cacti from appearing in the fossil record so like i said the only stuff we have are these pack rat middens and pollen Mm-hmm. That's that's it. So we know of uh, at least 16 species. Okay, so yes, my next section is why no fossils? <laughs> that's <Yeah>. what it <laughs> says. So I want you to think about this, geologists. You both have uh, degrees in geology. So if we think of it's a it's primarily 
a matter of habitat. Mm-hmm. If we think about the places where they live, especially today, and we assume they probably lived uh, uh, previously, they are living in high elevation and arid environments. These are no good for preservation because fossil preservation is a battle between accumulation versus erosion. We tend to find fossils in basins. That's where things get deposited. You know, the sediments can collect there. You can have this rapid burial. But in high elevation environments, you're primarily having erosion. So you're not going to get this accumulation that's going to be necessary to um, to preserve that. So you know, the rapid burial versus exposure, this stuff's going to weather away. And in addition to that, you got to think about their anatomy. So mm-hmm. you're right. They're not particularly woody. Like they're, they're not, they don't have true wood, right, at all. They're not. Well, some of them are trees, so I don't know what they're doing. It must be the environmental thing. But in terms of like, uh, like opunchas oh, and like you know prickly pears, things like that, if you've ever seen cactus wood, it's like a net. Yeah. Right. So there's lots of holes in it. Like it's gonna, it does dry out pretty quickly. But I imagine that it's also going to, you know, you're not having rapid burial. It is going to erode away. And also, you know, there's just not actually a lot to a cactus <laughs> like no. uh so yeah you, you you're not getting that rapid burial that you're gonna need in order to get a nice compression carbonization there's not a whole lot to them they're not really woody so you're not getting petrified wood like man everything about them is kind of set up to be like nah it's a secret like you're not gonna find us yeah, yeah. well and we there are fossil deposits around the world that are desert or arid ancient environments but something that we've brought up in our discussions about plants previously is that most of the time the conditions that are really good for preserving animal remains are not good for preserving plant remains bingo so we get desert fossils we get uh, you know there are some famous dinosaur deposits and such that are ancient deserts but i don't know off the top of my head of very many desert plant Fossil deposits. In general, thinking about the the like the majority of the plant fossil localities, like this is just off the top of my head. Uh, in general, we tend to find uh, either a forest floor sort of things, or they might be more dispersed. But in general, the reason we find them, like the way that we look for them when we are looking at the stratigraphic layers, is we are looking for stripes of rapid burial. A lot of these things are crevasse plays or basically where a um, river or pond, whatever has flooded. And so it deposits a bunch of uh, fine sediment material very rapidly over a bunch of plants. But if you're, if you're talking about a, an arid environment, you don't have the volumes of water <laughs> that would allow for this to happen. Like you, and I'm sure I'm confident there are exceptions, but at least most of the plant fossil localities that I'm familiar with, are associated with at least some water. And if you don't have that, like, mm, that's a problem. I also, and this could just be me not thinking of apt examples. Most of the examples that I can think of, of ancient desert depositional fossil assemblages are in the old world. Mm -hmm. Yes. I know we have some in the new world. I know there are some deposits in the new world that are, you know, ancient arid environments. Uh, but at least off the top of my head, it seems like they tend to be more common in other continents. 
And as we've established, if you want to find cacti, you have to be in the Americas. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it feels like it's maybe it's a matter of time. Eventually, we'll do enough digging. We'll find that one site. Um, I I do have a list of my dream fossils (laughs) that I would like. (laughs) So it's a bullet pointed list. The first bullet point is at this point, anything. Yes. Any cactus, <laughs> any, any cactus fossil cactus would be great. Uh, th- anything would be nice, but uh, but also being able to see, you know, quote unquote transitional forms, basically see the process to get a sense of were the earliest cacti just cacti as we know them today, or was this a gradual process of becoming more and more cactusy? Mm-hmm. Obviously, we love some fruits and flowers. That would be really helpful. We just always love a fruit and flowers because that would help us, you know, fill out our our, our tree to get a better sense. You know, we can um, because that's the thing, because there are no fossils, we can't calibrate the molecular, the molecular clock. There yeah. are no fossils that we can pin it to. It'd be really cool to get a sense of when they when the switch from leaves to stem stomata was. But yeah, being able to fill in these gaps. Uh, we have because we have a sense, which I'm about to. I'll go over soon. We have a sense of when they originated, mm-hmm. but we can't calibrate. We can't fine tune these models. So being yes. able to do that would be just so nice. Yeah. yeah, it's wild to think that the discovery of the first known cactus fossil is in the future. Yes, that that's a thing that someday will happen. Yeah, yeah. we will get the first known cactus fossils. I, I I can't I can't really articulate how weird it was. I went into Google Scholar and I typed in in quotation marks to make sure that I got exactly what I wanted, both cactus fossil and fossil cacti. Yes. And I have never had so few things come up. It was unsettling. Like yeah. how little there is. That's what like when I was talking about getting together sort of the early, early notes and I saw that the internet was like, there are no cactus fossils. And I was like, that's not true. Yeah, sure. Allie will get to the bottom of this. There's no <laughs> way that's true. I had the when, same thought. I'm like, there's gotta be something, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, right? Well, and this is such a great, like, like a just, just extreme example, but perfect example of what we've talked about for the the bias the, the biases of the fossil record that sometimes certain aspects just line up and mean you're not going to fossilize much here they just all lined up yeah yeah and it's a perfect storm yeah and it, it, it's once you think about it it makes sense that desert is not a great place yeah. for them to be fossilized as plants they're not mm-hmm. made of the right stuff they're very yep. th- th- that spongy texture i was glad mm-hmm. you mentioned that because that's something that's always stood out to my brain and as yeah. cactuses not that they're like you said they're not just squishy but they're n- i don't think of like having to go at them with an axe and like getting a bit bunch of reverberation back right. like you would with a tree it's gonna right. thunk in yes uh so yeah they just they are not set up for success when it comes to making fossils, even though they're successful in the desert in every other way. Yeah. Fine then. Keep your secrets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what do we know then or suspect about the origins of cactus? Where did cacti come from? So I have this divided up into when, where, and why. So let's start with when, because <laughs> I, I think that's the thing we want to know the most, because the fossils didn't tell us the answer. We right. know they're at least 24,000 years old, <laughs> which isn't very helpful. So based on biogeography, because they are only found in the Americas, 
they had to originate after the split of Gondwana of South America and Africa. Sure. Right, right. So that gives us like oldest they could possibly be. So the oldest they could possibly be is between 145 to 101 million years ago, early Cretaceous. Sure. Okay. That is, of course, accepting the possibility that there were other cacti in other places that have since gone completely extinct. Yep. This is so true. But if we're, if we're, <laughs> we have nothing to go <laughs> off in of. In a conservative so. estimate. <laughs> yes. There is exactly. a reasonable estimate. Yes. And, and bear, bear in mind when we talk about the history of angiosperms, of which they are one, a lot of our record of angiosperms only goes back into the Cretaceous. So, right. like, we're basically the question is, did the, the did cacti become cacti at the beginning of angiosperms, or was this a later development? Yes. So previously, older sources posited that this was a late Cretaceous split. So from their from their most their closest relatives in the Carolophyllales, they split between ninety and sixty six million years ago. Okay, so that's what older sources said. Molecular studies. So this is the ones that people are more comfortable with now right modern dna studies correct and this and and this makes a lot of this this you know this makes a lot of sense i mean we can't verify it with uh we can't verify it with fossils but like it seems right is that it split from the other members of the order in the late eocene to early oligocene roughly 35 30 million years ago okay all right yeah yeah so Okay, that's not that long. No, nope. Like that's 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 almost recent. Core cacti, um, so the cacti that are truly cacti, likely originated about twenty-five million years ago, and our current levels of diversity were reached about between ten and five million years ago. So late Miocene into early Pliocene. So that's that's what we're going for, or that's what we're working with in terms of when. That they split around 35, 30 million years ago. The core cacti split out around 25 million years ago. And then we reached our current levels of diversity between 10, uh, 10 and 5 million years ago. Okay. That, that's the way. This is a trend that is making a lot of sense to me for reasons that I'm not going to say because I assume you're about to go into it. <laughs> That's the why. Uh, I'm, so I'm next a, is I'm where. I'm a little bit not surprised <laughs> yeah. to hear this trend. <laughs> so when we talk about where. Mm-hmm. So again, if we are being conservative with this. So uh, Edwards and Donahue had a, pic- uh, had a paper that came out in 2006. I'm very intrigued by this. I think this makes a whole lot of sense. They argue that the earliest cactaceae, so members of the group as a, as a whole, lived in tropical, subhumid to semi-arid environments and were very water efficient. Which, if we think about the more basal, right, the the least cactusy cacti in our family, that makes a whole lot of sense. That's what we're seeing with the modern groups today. So that would put them in uh, possibly southern Central America and northern South America. Okay. Right, so long, around you know Colombia, Panama, tropical, equatorial, yes, nice wet places. Yes, exactly. Um, also, pretty much the center of these continents. Uh, so much room to expand from there. <laughs> the colocacti, so the ones that have the stem stomata, they likely originated in southern South America and then moved northward. But by and large, most of their uh, most of this evolution, uh, most of the origins are situated in 
the southern-ish, the southern half of of the Americas. But yeah, in general, we're we're pre- there's a lot of there was a lot of agreement with where these uh, plants originated. And so finally, the why. I was not surprised once I saw the dates <laughs> because they make fundamental sense. So throughout the Cenozoic, we see a general cooling and drying trend <laughs> and angiosperms evolve new and interesting ways to deal with aridity throughout the entirety of the Cenozoic, but especially in the second half, in the Neogene is when we see a lot of this stuff. So the timing of this is very similar to when we see the origins of, say, C4 photosynthesis and the expansion of grasslands. Yes. I was going to say, this will be a very <laughs> familiar story to people who remember episode 38, which it's, it's very funny because we talked in that episode about how weirdly unintuitive it is at first to think of grasslands as being something extremely young. Yeah, it's a baby biome. On our on our planet, our planet's history. So earlier when you were talking about cactus-like forms seem to have arisen in the Miocene Pliocene, and I thought, oh, that that means that cacti are a today thing on uh-huh. the history of Earth. And I went, aha, that's all right, now it's starting to things are starting <laughs> to come together. Right, exactly. Like, you know, deserts did not look like they do today until relatively recently. Yeah. The other thing to keep in mind, you know what else was happening at about that time? The uplift of the Andes. Mm-hmm. So the uplift of the Andes, the central Andes was around 25 to 20 million years ago. And you know what that causes? Increased aridity. <laughs> yeah, it cre- and it creates a lot of highland environments, uh-huh. high elevation environments. And it provides uh, habitats for uh, low precipitation. Exactly. So it's the kind of, again, with this perfect storm, all of these things lined up. So you have this general cooling and drying trend combined with mountain building. And so, yeah, you know, once, once they were able to kind of get settled, and that's part of the reason why they can really diversify in the way that they have, because they're basically, they are primed for this so when after the uh the orogeny the the origins of the uplift of the andes you know high level elevation life is hard for plants that's why it's mostly gymnosperms up there so being able to already have these uh, adaptations in place to, a, to to deal with that like they they were doing great they were mm-hmm. they were made for this they were built for this so the habitats for cacti to be cacti originate around this 20 to 30 million years ago time, which is really interesting to think about where that fits in sort of the the formation of the modern state of the world. As we've talked about in previous episodes, that is when we see grasslands mm-hmm. start to become a thing. It is also, get back to our thing, when we see all the modern prevalent groups of snakes originate and radiate (laughs) in coordination with the spread of these new types of habitats, which means cacti are not likely one of those groups of plants. That's like, yeah, these have been around for as long as there have been plants. They are a modern earth type Mm -hmm. of life. Yeah. A response to the shift in climate. 
Exactly. They, I, I, I think that when we do, because that's the other thing. Remember the, uh, that was a Green River formation. That was an Eocene fossil. That would be really close to mm-hmm. it. Actually, they dated it to earlier than we think this split happened. So even uh, more support to the fact that yeah, that that was probably it's, not. It's probably actually, not a cactus. Not a cactus. Well, it sounds like if all those estimates are true, that the early fossil record of cacti in addition to all the other problems we've discussed would be found potentially in areas that today are difficult places to find fossils because they're densely forested or very high elevation or something correct correct one more one more problem for finding (laughs) fossils of cacti yes but I would like to uh, I would like to add and uh, end on kind of a fun note. I would like to tell you some superlatives, some record setters, some of the biggest and best of cacti. Please, because do. man, they are they're doing everything. The tallest cactus is Pachycerus pringuli, the height of almost twenty meters, so nineteen point wow. two meters. It is sixty three feet tall. There wow. are trees shorter than that. Yeah. That's a big cactus. <laughs> That's a big cactus. The smallest cactus is Blossfeldia lilliputiana. <laughs> it has a diameter of one centimeter. Like is it half like a little round? One of yep, those little, little, little cushion things. Yes. Uh, also, come on, that epithet. That's real yes, good. Very yes. nice. Little Linda for sure. Oh, so cute. Uh, and then I have the thirstiest cactus. So this is your saguaros, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So Carnegie Gigantia. They can hold a volume of 760 liters, which is 200 U.S. gallons. Wow, you could keep so many fish in that cactus. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. Yeah, that's that uh, th- the thirstiest cactus. Mm-hmm. Yep, the wettest cactus, <laughs> the quenchiest cactus. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's very succulent. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, also, I had a thought while we were talking about the the you know mysteries of their their origins and the lack of fossils. That leads me to the question of what was doing cactusy stuff in dinosaur deserts. Before and was there yes was there something was there an equivalent to cacti before cacti and would we even have would we have any fossils of that or would we be missing those two oh is there a whole ecosystem ancient cactus analog that is just missing from the fossil record I was thinking about this the whole time and I did not have time to go digging but I wonder. Right. Like who, Mm. who was it? Who was doing this? Was it some, because there are, there are gymnosperms that Mm -hmm. live in these sorts of environments, like, or, or like, or like if I, it's like, you know, other vascular plants. So, you know, there are lots of kinds of like, uh, silotum, I believe like ephedra, well, which, yeah. So like, there are these things, but they're not, I don't (sighs) My vague impression is that I don't think it was them. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, but I, yeah, because the other, th- like, yeah, 
Because there had to be some greenery out there for those dinosaurs to be out there. Like I also just, have we're walking through and not living there. I have a lot be. of questions about what dinosaurs were eating before angiosperms. Yeah. But that's a that's a that's a different question. <laughs> they were um, just all malnourished. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. just struggling to make it. I could do with something. I don't know what the flavor is. Sweet? <laughs> Sweet? Is that the word? I made it up just now. I could really go for 200 U.S. gallons of water <laughs> in this, in the parched Jajakta formation. Exactly. Allie, uh, what a fantastic episode. This Did is, you learn things? Oh, so much. I learned things that are disquieting. Yes. Things, <laughs> yes. Things I didn't want to learn about the nature of the world. Yes, yeah. that as a paleontologist are very unnerving. I don't <laughs> like a group that has avoided the... Fi- I don't like... Th- these are the graboids of plants. Yeah. They have been around for who knows how long, but they have evaded the fossil record the whole time. Oh, man, they're in the desert, too? And they're in the desert. Whoa. Make that movie. <laughs> uh this is fantastic. This is fascinating. This is one of those episodes that is a great example of why we bring Allie on the podcast. Uh, neither one of us could have pulled that off. Nope. I, I wouldn't have believed me if I had done research and found that there are no cactus. Yes, I, I would have had the feeling the whole time that's like, surely I missed the, the paper that's saying here's I'm going to debunk this myth. Right. That like, surely I missed that book or chapter that that gives the correct info yeah i would have been i would have distrusted myself the whole time i'm glad you believe me when i say there are no cactus fossils (laughs) because now it's on you you can come on this podcast and tell us anything about plants (laughs) and we will believe it no i did so much research for this i swear (laughs) it's true (laughs) before we officially wrap up the whole episode there's one more thing to do and that is a patron question one of the benefits that our patrons can receive on Patreon. Thank you, as always, to our patrons, is the ability to submit questions for us to answer here on the podcast. Every now and then we get questions that are specifically for Allie, Mm -hmm. and we save these for the plant episodes. Allie, this episode's question comes from Danielle, who asks, if we wanted to, could we clone a plant? How would that work? Could that work? I love this question because it is one of the few questions that I did not have to do a lot of research for. (laughs) (laughs) So short answer, plant cloning is so easy. It is so common. We don't have to do it. The plants are doing it themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So it is way easier to clone a plant than it is to clone an animal. Because as I mentioned before, plants are modular Mm-hmm. And they're also not obligate sexual reproducers. Right. So that those two things, you know, you can pull off a branch and make a new plant. If you pull off my arm, you're not making a new me. <laughs> no um, new Allie. No new Allie. Not without a lot of equipment and time. <laughs> exactly. So more machine than Allie at that point. <laughs> well, the way that we clone animals uh, traditionally is you mm-hmm. get a cell with all the genetic material and uh-huh. the code to, to make a whole new animal. And then you have to basically create a fertilized cell that will mm-hmm. then develop into a whole animal. Right. And that was that was the interesting thing. So an example of, you know, uh, cloning plants is pretty much every fruit tree. So apples do not breed true. If you plant the seeds of a tasty, tasty apple, 
the apple tree that grows from that seed is not going to taste anything like the parent apple. Mm -hmm. So in order to maintain these varieties of say like, you know, golden delicious, why did I choose a nasty tasting apple, a uh, honey crisp, you know, like oh, we're going to get a lot of hate mail from all the golden delicious I, fans. I will fight you. Um, <laughs> direct all your complaints to Dr. Ali Baumgartner. Make a new channel in the discord. Oh, no, but the way that you do that is by grafting in a, you know, a branch from the tasty uh, fruit tree into another one, and then it will grow into this tasty fruit tree. So that is, you know, this vegetative uh, reproduction. It's it's cloning. It is the same uh, genetic material. But I was thinking about this. So with animals, right? You know, you go through the entire ontogeny, right? Because you are, you know, you are developing this thing. That's not how it works with plants. You are, there are, I was, I looked into this because I was like, there's no way this is true. And I couldn't find any evidence for that sort of situation where you are basically germinating clones material. All that I could find was just like, you know, doubling adults, right? It might grow uh, from a small bit, but it's not a baby. Like yeah, it's just a, a it's small a adult. Sapling. You're yeah. not taking genetic material putting it in a seed and then that seed develops yeah. into the thing. Exactly. You're taking a branch and sticking it in the ground and it turns into a tree. Yes. E yeah, whatever. exactly. So a, a good example of just how good plants are at cloning themselves is Pando. So Pando is a grove <laughs> of male aspen trees in Utah. It is the largest tree by weight it is the largest tree by landmass. It takes up 106 acres. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it is the largest known Aspen clone. So it was identified as being a clone uh, because they they were doing, like, they were testing all of the uh, multiple stems. It turned out, oh, these are all identical. This is all the same thing. So, yes, Short answer, we can absolutely clone plants. We do it all the time. Plants do it on their own. That's part of the reason why uh, Ripsalis was able to, you know, do so well is it could self-pollinate, which is basically cloning. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, like... Actually, that's where it's growing from a – that one is actually like it's doing the whole process, like yes. germinating. Right. Yeah, but that's it's self-fertilizing. Yes, exactly. Thinking. So let me follow up with this question then, Allie. I'm ready. And it is implied in the film Jurassic Park, <laughs> and I believe it is – I think it's explicit in the book. Yes. Uh, that in addition to growing ancient animals, they also have plants. Yes. Yes. How do setting aside the important, but for the purposes of this conversation, negligible fact that we cannot clone ancient uh, extinct <laughs> things? How would they? Do you think they were like getting DNA and building an artificial seed, yeah, or it, was it like we have a branch in amber, <laughs> we have technology that let us stick it on an existing yeah. plant and Ooh. it grew? If I, I gave you the DNA for a plant. Could you make me that plan? Yeah. Thank you for blowing my mind. Okay, <laughs> so let's start on easy mode, and then we will move up in difficulty. Easy mode. If we were talking, say, Pleistocene Park as opposed to Jurassic mm -hmm. Park, then we can benefit from the fact that uh, we have germinated 
uh, seeds of ancient plants from permafrost. Yes, we have germinated seeds back to like thirty thousand years old. Or exactly. Something, which is so for so so old for them to stop at plants. Stop. Yes. That's older than the fossil record of cactus. <laughs> <laughs> and to be clear, that's not cloning. That is, we Correct. found seeds that are so good at being seeds that we took yes. them out of the permafrost and we said, would you like to grow? And they went, yes, Just thank you very much. Very sleepy seeds. Yes, exactly. So I think easy mode, if we were not talking like, you know, if we're talking Pleistocene, not Jurassic, sure, we might be able to, to do some seed bank stuff. Uh, I admit readily, I am not that kind of paleobotanist. Um, mm. So I don't dabble <laughs> in the DNA. Um, but I would be very... Curious. Okay, hold on. All right, thought process. I betcha. Okay, if I were to do this, this is how I would do it. Because we obviously do a lot of genetic modifying of plants. Yes. This is like, we fiddle with their DNA all the time. We love to do it. And so I betcha the best way to do it would be to 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 basically use the technique that we uh, that people have talked about doing with say um, cloning mammoths, where you basically do it a little like a few tweaks at a time, right? So mm-hmm. because like if you put a fully mammoth, if you try to implant like a fully mammoth embryo into an elephant, the the elephant's going to absolutely reject that because it's so fundamentally different. So you kind of have to do it in stages and like ramp up the the proportion of mammoth DNA. I wonder if you could kind of do it that way. Just like, like make some tweaks and like, all right, that's working. Make some more tweaks. Okay, that's working. And kind of doing it piecemeal like a, sort of like that. Step-by-step kind of hybridization almost. Yes, that's mm-hmm. that if it were up to me. I think that's how I would try to do it. I would also try to, so one of the things, so I I took a a bunch of biological anthropology classes when I was an undergrad. And one of the, John Hawks came and talked to us about, so he he, uh, was part of the discovery of a lot of like the Denisovan material. So like this really ancient DNA. So he came and talked to us and he was talking about this ancient DNA and how do you fill in the gaps when you can't get the good material? And we were absolutely stumped. And he was like, you compare it to a chimpanzee because they're one of our nearest relatives. It's like, oh, that makes sense. So by, so that's a way to fill in the gaps, right? Find your know, nearest living relatives that you can build from and that can fill in the scaffolding. I mean, there's all this work with ancient DNA. Who knows? Maybe one day we'll be able to get enough information <laughs> to make more educated guesses, but- uh, Do you think that the technology to clone plants- existed on the spaceship that cacti got to earth on 24,000 years ago. Absolutely. How else would they have survived the intergalactic journey? 100%. So once we get our time machine, we can go back in time to when the aliens came with the cacti and then we can steal the technology to Mm. clone plants. Yes, this is, this is, this is clearly this is clearly maybe, the solution. Maybe they'll come back. But the maybe fossil the fossil cacti aren't dead. They just went home. Yes. <laughs> Allie, thank you so much for indulging our plant curiosities. Uh, thank you to Danielle for that patron question and to all of our patrons for supporting us uh, and all the stuff we do with the podcast. If you are interested in learning more about cacti, uh, don't forget to check out our website. There will be a blog post after this episode with pictures. I will ask Allie to provide us with links to fun information, and we'll put some of those on there as well. 
Also on that website is a topic request form. So if there are other plant topics that you would like us to bring Allie on to tell us all about, you can go ahead and submit your requests in the topic request form. Thank you to all of the people who requested this episode. This was a ton of fun. We look forward to future requests on along this nature. Thank you again to all of our patrons who support us. And an extra special thanks to our top tier patrons on Patreon, Sarah May, Danielle the Bug Lover, and Robert Mart. We release episodes every fortnight mm-hmm. here on the podcast. There's uh, other th- more episodes coming up. And in another 10 episodes... Uh, 195, we'll bring Allie back again to talk about more plant stuff. <laughs> it's going to be so fun. Allie, thanks as always uh, for coming on the podcast. I I love this. This is so much fun. It's so easy. I kind of forget that we're recording sometimes. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> well, it's always good for us to get to explore the nature of plants, the fossil record. Uh, this To get to have some very pointed conversations about uh, the nature of how we investigate the world. Juicy discussion. Juicy discussions. <laughs> been a lot, there, this has been a very like joke and reference heavy episode, and I'm, I'm here for it. This, this happens when Allie comes on, because Allie is the same age as us and has all of the same cultural references that we do. And an enabler. Yeah. Uh, yep, yep. Allie, I was going to ask you a question. I meant to ask this before the wrap-up, but now we're in the rambly outro portion of the episode. No one will hear this. It's fine. Um, it has been brought to our attention. Uh, so I think someone mentioned this on the Discord. Are you? Have you become aware of the plant version of Metazoa that exists now? No. It is called, <laughs> it is called Metaflora. I'm I am, literally writing this down. I am so much worse at it <laughs> than Metazoa. Okay. Metaflora. I'm so excited. Listeners, check it out. Metaflora. It's the. It's the. It's Wordle for plants kind of sort of for plant taxonomy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh and I, right I, right before we we end the episode i was like oh, that's right i was gonna mention that to Allie. Allie, uh enjoy that uh, i wrote it down i'm so excited a big thanks to whoever it was on the discord that <laughs> shared that i forget who it was thank you so much let's get out of here yeah okay bye bye Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.